G'day and welcome back to the Australian Histories Podcast. Before I start, I'm just going to let you all know that I'm not recording today in my usual recording space, so please forgive me if there's any loss of quality in today's sound. We're going to recount an amazing story of a shipwreck today and the exhausting overland walk undertaken by the survivors in 1797. So I hope this story will distract you from any odd noises you might hear in today's recording. It is a fascinating tale for several reasons. There is the excitement and the interest of the initial wreck of a cargo ship, bringing supplies for sale to the infant British penal colony of Port Jackson, today's Sydney, just on spec, while the ship foundered and they managed to make it to land, in those early years when there was very little sailing traffic likely to pass by and to save them in such a remote location, they had to formulate a plan to save themselves and a number of the men were charged with trying to make their way to Port Jackson any way they could. Another element is the ensuing long trek through country completely unknown to the survivors and the contact recorded in one man's diary with multiple Aboriginal groups along the way as the survivors passed through their country. The surprise and the interactions of the resulting contact for both groups, the Indigenous locals and the colonial seafarers, is interesting to reflect on too. It's a story that has only fairly recently come to my attention and it forms one of four fascinating stories that Mark McKenna investigated and wrote about in his book From the Edge, Australia's Lost Histories. I will be using Mark's work as a starting point along with a few journal articles and related publications available in the Historical Records of New South Wales to retell this story and I will as always provide the links to those reference materials on the Australian Histories Podcast webpage. Before we jump in though, I'd like to welcome and thank my newest patrons who signed up to Patreon to help support the show on a regular basis. Thanks to the novelly named Wood Duck. I hope you don't mind me revealing your surname, Mr or Ms Duck. <laughs> and my gratitude also goes out to Jamie R for becoming a new patron. Simon O also sent me through a very generous one-off contribution via the link on the Australian Histories Podcast webpage. So many thanks, friends. I'm so happy that you're enjoying the show so much and grateful that you're able to help me offset the costs of the work that I share with you all here. Now, on with the show! Now, just to set the scene for this month's story, we'll recall that the British had set up a convict colony in Port Jackson, now known as Sydney, in January of 1788, much to the dismay and the disruption of the Eora people already in occupation there. Arriving with boatloads of marines, a motley and unskilled collection of convicts, and insufficient supplies, In the following few years, the poorly planned settlement nearly faltered, coming close to starvation, before further supplies and more British arrived to consolidate a firm foothold in the Sydney area. By 1796, after less than 10 years' occupation, it seemed, well, to those still far away from Australia at least, that the settlement was now on its way to becoming successful 
and certainly its isolation ensured that the relocated British would be in great want of the usual European comforts. At that time, the European population was still under 5,000. Linda Clark in her paper breaks it down as around 2,800 convicts, 640 military officers and civilian administrators, and around 540 or 50 free settlers and time-served convicts. And they were all in need of a range of imported goods and materials, as there was still very little being produced in the colony. Canny businessmen, and no doubt the complete shysters as well, could see a land of opportunity here. Dollar signs, or should that be pound signs, were in their eyes. The Scottish firm Campbell and Clark saw just how they might profit from the Port Jackson settlement, and they began putting plans in place to offer just the kind of goods the convicts and colonists of Sydney might need. Campbell and Clark had taken advantage of opportunities in the east, setting up in Calcutta, then a centre of the booming empire trade, operating in the shadow of the giant East India Company. Young William Clark joined his brother there, already working with the Campbells, in 1796, ready to do his bit for the company and to earn his own fortune. Along with their shipping agency and warehouses on the wharves, they also owned a rum distillery, producing around 10,000 gallons each month. The tiny colony growing in Sydney was a big fan of rum. <laughs> Even the rather poorer quality rum distilled in Calcutta. So opportunity called. They engaged fellow Glaswegian Captain Gavin Hamilton, sometimes recorded as Guy Hamilton, and his 30-metre, two-decked, three-masted ship, called the Big Unshore. Expecting this to be the first of many lucrative voyages to Sydney, they decided to rename the ship the Sydney Cove. Nothing sus here. No way were they being sycophantic sockholes trying to impress the Governor of Sydney. Don't worry about that. But this renaming may have been a crucial mistake. Sailing folklore will tell you that renaming a boat is not wise. Such a wanton action risks the wrath of the sea gods and it can bring disaster. Unless the said renaming is done with the correct ceremony, you're simply courting trouble. But maybe Captain Hamilton was the fearless type and no slave to superstition. So the plans proceeded. McKenna records that the cargo gathered included, quote, well over 100 casks of rum, pipes of Madeira wine and cases of beer, champagne, gin and brandy, barrels of tar, <laughs> and I note that would likely provide a less appealing after-dinner drink, perhaps. <laughs> no, 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 just joking. Uh, chests of Chinese porcelain, textiles, tea, tobacco, soap, vinegar, candles, bags of rice and sugar, several horses and cattle, one buggy and one organ, unquote. Well, there's a happening party right there. The settlers at Sydney Cove were bound to be delighted and scramble for such goods. The livestock would be a very valuable asset in boosting the breeding stock in Sydney. Linda Clark, no relation one assumes, so I'll just refer to her work as Linda from now on to avoid confusion with William Clark. Linda records that there were 
At the time, only 327 head of cattle presently in the colony, and she reminds us that the slaughter of domestic animals for meat was then prohibited, their breeding capability being much more valuable. But they were also in desperate need of almost everything else that was all too slowly and infrequently being sent from England. Though there was no formal agreement for the colony to trade directly with firms from India, several had already done so, and Clark's firm felt the risk of sending attractive supplies on spec would almost certainly be a lucrative gamble. Other items sent included salted meat, clothing manufactured in India, fabrics and dyes, shoes and leather goods. No cattle being slaughtered for food meant no hides were available for shoes in the colony, so imports were in great demand, even those lighter, less robust goatskin shoes common in India. And they packed silk and cotton handkerchiefs. Well, we recall how coveted the humble handkerchief is in a convict colony, don't we? <laughs> Just head back to those Cascades episodes and get a reminder. They even imported Chinese porcelain chamber pots, made specifically for the European market, as these were not items that the Chinese used. Linda reminds us that with the English Industrial Revolution in full swing, the goods being manufactured for that European market, closer to home, the Chinese and Asian producers would have been very happy to find a voracious new market for their products at Port Jackson. William Clark would travel to Sydney as the supercargo, which sounds exciting, but was just a title that meant he was to take responsibility for all the cargo on board. Uh, a rather onerous task, actually. So he prepared for another voyage, this time to the Southern Oceans, bringing with him his Bengali manservant. The material I looked at doesn't record the manservant's name, but that's probably not unusual for the day, is it? Captain Hamilton recruited Hugh Thompson as his first mate and someone named Leesham as his second. John Bennett and another two Europeans joined the crew, along with 44 local sailors, who were described as Lascars, and they carried a number of passengers too. Lascars was the term generally used by Europeans then to describe a sailor or a militiaman from the Indian subcontinent, Southeast Asia, or the Arab world. McKenna suggests that the locally recruited sailors were probably also Bengali men, probably a mix of Muslims and Hindus from the northeast regions of Silet. The Laskar sailors were competent and able seamen, and, making them even more attractive recruits, would work for half what might be paid to European sailors, so they apparently formed the majority of the British seafaring workforce trading with India. McKenna notes that they usually worked barefoot, but I think actually most sailors at the time did so, wearing, quote, loose drawers of light cotton, a white frock or jacket, and turbans, unquote. So that sounds like typical gear suitable for the tropics. Hamilton recorded that they were issued with extra clothing and blankets for the journey, but I doubt that they would have known what the Southern Ocean would have in store for them. Sailing their ship 12,000 kilometres into the cold southern oceans would likely have been a new experience for all the Laskas. Indeed, it was a new experience for everyone aboard. While Hamilton was said to have been an experienced navigator, this route was new to him. The journey to Port Jackson was itself still pretty novel, and the charts available primitive. The Bass Strait was yet to be discovered and charted, and the weather patterns around southern Australia still unfamiliar to most European captains. 
However, there was a vast amount of money to be made, and all seafaring trade was risky, so they may not have had any greater concern than for any standard voyage. Clark Hamilton and his crew set sail on November 10, 1796, and the first four weeks sailing were uneventful. But luck was not with them when they entered the Southern Ocean, and they experienced gale after gale, weakening the ship and causing it to take in water, necessitating constant pumping to keep them afloat. After two weeks struggling, they had brief respite and were able to repair one of the main leaks, reducing the constant water intake for a while. But as they reached the southeast corner of Tasmania, then called Van Diemen's Land, and began heading north, up what they thought was a continuous coastline towards Port Jackson, they experienced yet another fierce storm. The ship and sails, already badly ravaged over the previous few weeks, now really struggled. The sailors were desperately working to haul the sails into safe and useful positions, as well as continually pumping the bilge to keep from holding fatal amounts of water in the hold. Around this time they lost their first crewman, the second mate Leesham. As he attempted to haul in the sails, losing his grip on the freezing conditions, he fell from the rigging into the water. The conditions were so challenging that no rescue could be attempted. It seems then that terror and exhaustion finally overtook the Bengali crew, and they would no longer work the pumps up on the exposed and freezing deck. Hamilton was able to get them to bail water out by hand from below decks, where at least they had some shelter from the worst of the elements, and could recover a little from the shock. Remember that these were men used to tropical climates. This series of freezing, remorseless southern storms must have been horrendous. But the appalling weather persisted, and in order to keep themselves afloat, they had to be persuaded to pump and bail continuously into the second night. So dire was the situation that five of the crew died from exhaustion and exposure over the following hours. And with no ceremony at all, the bodies of these poor men were simply thrown overboard while all remaining hands tried to keep the vessel afloat. Finally the storm abated and there was some small reprieve. They did their best to reduce the leaks, but within days, while they were making progress up the east coast of Tasmania, they were once again hit by another tempest. The ship was no longer seaworthy, and the crew were exhausted. They had to make for a sheltered position where repairs might be possible. Some heavy items were thrown overboard to give the ship more buoyancy, but the captain began looking for possible landfall immediately. They had made their way through the water off the northeast tip of Tasmania, between Cape Barren Island and Clark Island, but the initial land that Hamilton sighted appeared to have high rocks and fierce surf. They had to hope that the ship would stay afloat until daylight, when they could at least see the best options for putting a longboat ashore. The ship continued to take on water, and by dawn of February 9th, that's 1797, it began listing badly. Using the longboat, they managed to reach shore, and over the coming days they salvaged a good deal of the cargo, ferrying it over to one of the small islands on the southwest of the Ferno Archipelago. But the Sydney Cove appeared to be beyond saving. The Ferno group sits above the northeast tip of the main island of Tasmania. 
Flinders Island, Cape Barren Island and others in the group are the highest point remnants of the land bridge that was at times over millennia entirely above sea level between Victoria and Tasmania. A land bridge most recently flooded again to form the Bass Strait only around 10 to 15,000 years ago. Indigenous groups were resident in the area for more than 35,000 years, but according to a document on the history of Aboriginal Tasmanians produced by Flinders Council, permanent occupation seemed to have ceased on what was by then the islands between four and 6,000 years ago, though the locals instead visited and stayed on the islands seasonally to take advantage of the food resources there. Commander Tobias Furno of HMS Adventure seems to have been the first European to chart the position of that archipelago in March of 1773, hence the naming, though at that time they were still under the impression that the Tasmanian coast continued north, connected to the mainland, and he would not have been aware that these were separated islands. It was not until Bass and Flinders undertook their circumnavigation of the Australian mainland after 1801 that Tasmania was confirmed to be an island separate from Victoria by what we now call the Bass Strait running in between. So the island where the Sydney Cove crew made landfall, just three kilometres long and one kilometre wide, became known as Preservation Island. Still around 500 nautical miles from their desired destination, it was a godsend rescue point for Hamilton, Clark and their crew. But the Furno group sticking out there at the tip of Tassie can be an obstacle for the occasional sailor even today. The most recent incident that comes to mind was a yacht returning from the Sydney to Hobart race in 2015. Actually, the yacht seduction had completed the Melbourne to Hobart part of that race and it ran aground at Gull Island in the Furno group on its return journey. And there's a distressingly substantial list of shipwrecks from the early days of boat travel onwards on a website which seems to be part of an encyclopedia of Australian shipwrecks. And I'll put a link to that in with the references for any shipwreck fans out there. Over several days, the Able crew retrieved much of the cargo from the waterlogged ship, now lying on its side offshore. The cargo was valuable and anything retrieved might still bring a return once they were rescued. And of course they would need supplies to survive until then too. So they proceeded optimistically, Hamilton sending men out to scout the island for water and other resources. They had been unable to salvage water from the vessel and none was found on the island, though when they dug a deep well they were able to find brackish water which he wrote, quote, answered the purpose, unquote, so they were able to keep the livestock McKenna reminds us that these would likely have been the first cows and horses introduced to Tasmania. Of course, sailors had for years left pigs or goats or rabbits to breed up on remote islands all over the place as insurance provision for a shipwreck. Hamilton's men used the remaining sails to build makeshift tents, but with the winter not too many months away, exposure and cold would make their sanctuary there very uncomfortable. Passing ships would be few, so simply waiting it out was a dangerous tactic. Instead, they opted for another very dangerous tactic, that is, repairing and better outfitting the longboat and sending some of the men sailing north to Port Jackson to get help. In fact, the plan was even more dangerous than they imagined, because rather than sailing along the coast to Sydney, they would need, in fact, to first cross the previously mentioned Bass Strait a challenging stretch of water that strikes fear into present-day sailors. 
With the GPS and excellent maps, intrepid types in smaller vessels might island hop from mainland to Tassie these days if you can forecast the weather and pick a benign window, but sensible sailors still treat Bass Strait with a great respect. Would they have made the attempt if they'd known the strait existed and its future reputation for rugged weather and treacherous winds and tides? Anyway, two weeks later, Clark, Thompson and Bennett, along with 12 of the youngest and most robust Laskars, set off on February 27th, hoping to sail the last 500 nautical miles to Sydney. They only had meagre rations, Hamilton's sextant to aid their navigation, and a written plea from the captain to Governor Hunter asking for assistance to recover the stranded men and valuable cargo, which would still be desired by the Port Jackson inhabitants. And Clark also carried a pencil and journal, which he would use to record their progress. Now, the journey from Calcutta and the harrowing wreck is already an exciting story. But here's where it really gets interesting, I think. Clark and company had made plans for several contingencies, and that was just as well. For two days they sailed north and did indeed sight what we now know is the mainland, continuing along close to the coast. But the evening brought a rising gale, and the seas whipped up, soon threatening to swamp the overloaded longboat. While they were within reach of a beach, the surf was so fierce that they were unable to bring the boat into land, and instead they had to spend a rough night anchored just offshore. At daybreak they were again foundering, and managed to get close enough to shore for the crew to make it to land, but the boat was then engulfed and broke up in the surf. There was little time to rescue much on board, though some belongings were washed up on shore. It must have been devastating. On the upside, they'd all survived the drenching, but they had lost most of their belongings and were now in a precarious state, still many, many hundreds of miles from Port Jackson. As McKenna noted, on top of their concern about their own safety and survival, they would have felt despair at knowing their task of arranging rescue for the men they'd left behind was now even more difficult. The 17 men had come ashore halfway along Victoria's 90-mile beach. That's about 45 kilometres southwest of Lake's entrance. That part of the mainland was still, at that time, considered to be New South Wales, as the Victorian colony would not break away for another half-century. Many Victorians may be familiar with the 90-mile beach, and it really is a spectacularly long stretch of sandy beach, a very beautiful part of the coastline. But to the shocked Clark and his companions, it must have looked like a terrifying stretch of unfamiliar coastal wilderness, and it marked the beginning of a vast trek they would need to undertake on foot if they had any chance of saving themselves and their shipmates back on Preservation Island. So they spent the next couple of days scouting the area and gathering any of their materials that washed up on the beach. They would need to trudge through unknown country with the few supplies they had left, for an unknown distance, with no maps or clues to their progress, so it would be necessary for them to keep heading north, hugging the coast, not the quickest route to Sydney. Though a few convicts had attempted to escape Port Jackson by walking through the bush, most failed or disappeared, probably covering only relatively short distances. In attempting a 700-kilometre walk from the Victorian coast to Sydney, Clark's men would be the first Europeans to do so, and perhaps even more surprising, the first group of Bengali men to do so as well. 
Clark, like many of the Europeans coming to Australia, was under the impression that there were very few native persons already living in Australia, but he expected they might come across some on their journey, and this was an anxiety, as they knew nothing about these indigenous people. Of course, Cook and Banks were wrong in their assessment of the native population. Indigenous Australians lived right across the whole country, from the coastal areas to the inland deserts. The clans of the Gunai Kurnai people are the traditional owners of the Gippsland area in southeast Victoria, which encompasses the 90 mile beach. It's very probable that they would have discovered the strangers making their way through their country, but they appear not to have made themselves known to Clark and his group for some time. Clark's group had salvaged only a small amount of rice, some axes and some other handy tools, cooking pots, calico and water containers, and they recovered, quote, one gun, two pistols and two small swords, unquote. McKenna does not mention ammunition or shot, but he suggests if these items had not been disabled after getting so wet, they might have provided weapons to allow hunting to feed themselves. Certainly, where they landed, there was plenty of native game to be had, from abundant water birds in the lakes behind the beach to kangaroos and echidnas. So they began their trek on foot. The soft leather shoes common in Calcutta were not sturdy enough to last long, and while the weather was presently autumnal and pleasant, winters in the south of Australia can get very cool and wet. Not ideal walking weather. While the conditions remain mild, though, they would have the potential for sunburn and perhaps the discomfort of mosquitoes and march flies and the like. And in places, the bush would have been thick and prickly. So they did well as they set off to manage up to 25 or more miles a day to begin with. March 15th, Clark began his journal, noting that the beach walking was relatively easy. Though reaching Lake's entrance, they had to build a raft across the river exiting there. A few days later, they had their first glimpse of the Gunai Kurnai people when several men approached them as they walked towards Lake Tyres. Clark wrote, quote, They were struck with astonishment at our appearance, and they were very anxious to examine every part of our clothes and body, in which we readily indulged them. They viewed us almost attentively. They opened our clothes, examined our feet, hands, nails, etc., frequently expressing their surprise by laughing and loud shouting. From their gestures during the awkward review, it was easy to perceive that they considered our clothes and bodies as inseparably joined. If the Aboriginal men were interested in the newcomers, so Clark's group were amazed at the appearance of them. Clark recorded that the men were, quote, strong and muscular, with heads rather large in proportion to their bodies, flat noses, broad, thick lips, their hair long and straight, and they had fish bones or kangaroo teeth fastened with gum or glue to the hair of the temples and the forehead. A piece of reed or bone was also worn through the septum or cartilage of the nose. So there was amazement for both groups discovering each other, and it did seem to be a friendly and curious kind of encounter. There was a level of goodwill between them, and the Gunai Kurnai men went on to provide assistance as Clark and his party moved through their country, particularly in helping them cross the rivers. While there seemed mutual goodwill, there was also patronising judgment, Clark adopting the usual colonial attitudes towards the Indigenous peoples. No account was taken of their success in living fruitful, if completely different, lives to the Europeans, 
they did not have the flexibility to consider how the differences might advantage the Indigenous peoples in their lands, only interpreting them as savages who had failed to meet the only marker of successful society that the British could imagine, a Western concept of ownership, agriculture, development and consumerism, and a European dress and exclusive social code that allowed for winners and losers in a social structure. But as Clark developed his knowledge of the people he met, he became a little more aware of the completely different social structure the Aboriginal peoples operated within, though not entirely uniform in the society and customs of the different language groups, the general Aboriginal social structure was complex, based more on custodianship than exploitative ownership, a culture of gift-giving and sharing, and of nuanced etiquette and social mores, none of which the incoming British initially recognised or understood. There were hints that Clark was actually beginning to learn and understand some of the regional etiquette and behaviours as he moved across the land into and out of different country under custodianship of different language groups. But sadly, his capacity to develop this knowledge without prejudice was limited. The Aboriginal way of life was so different to the European that they could only look on it as primitive and wanting, and Clark was unable to consider the elements that might have made it perfect for the environment the Aboriginal people had been in for perhaps more than 60,000 years. In an interesting twist, viewing the encounter through the eyes of the first Australians, a Thua man who had been a teen when Clark passed through recorded, in his old age, his impressions of the first white men he'd encountered in his country, and he was just as repulsed by the differences. Apparently his people were, quote, appalled by the colour of the newcomers, unquote, <laughs> and they headed for the hills. So beauty's in the eye of the beholder, eh? Was it their pasty skin or the clothes that were so odd in the eyes of the dark-skinned people? Where might relations have gone if the cultural clash had been replaced with open and inquiring minds and respect for different ways to solve universal human problems? To be fair, on the grand scale of cultural insensitivity, Clark was not too bad really, and he observed and, and developed a better understanding as he went along, although others in his group would prove more inflexible. How the Lascars interpreted or understood the new cultures they were encountering is unknown, but it would have sometimes been pretty scary and anxiety-inducing under the circumstances. But even with the sometime help of the Gurnai Kurnai men, as they moved onward, the walking, river crossings and limited nutrition was fatiguing and they probably would not have progressed much at all without that help. The terrain was sometimes very challenging and the flora would have been quite unfamiliar. But interestingly, Clark took the time to note in his diary the beauty of the land around him. Occasionally they were forced to move a few kilometres inland to find places to ford or cross rivers, but a fear of being disoriented and lost in the interior always drove them back to the coast, and certainly that would have provided some beautiful vistas for those with the energy to appreciate them. At various places along the beaches they passed Aboriginal middens, piles of debris made up from discarded shells from communal seafood feasts over thousands of years. The Australian Aboriginals here were not the miserable, starved figures that some European writers describe them as, but indeed generally well-fed, with a range of foods available seasonally across their country, and the seafood would have formed one element of that. 
But for the newcomers, all was strange. They did not have enough supplies with them to survive their long trek, but neither did they have the skills and knowledge of this strange land to take advantage of the abundance all round. They needed to supplement their diet with wild game, but they found it hard to acquire. Indeed, without the assistance and food sharing of the Aboriginal groups they encountered, they would certainly have starved not long into their journey. By late March, they had covered around 200 kilometres and were close to the current New South Wales-Victorian border, but they still had around 500 more to go to their destination, and they would soon be moving out of Gunai Kurnai country and losing their support. Interesting then that probably the first long trek through country resulting in sustained interactions with multiple Aboriginal groups was undertaken by three Europeans and 14 Laskas. The sources for their experiences are almost entirely taken from Clark's diary and perhaps Bennett's recollections, so it's a European perspective, but it's still a fascinating window into early contact. There was pretty much nothing recorded about the experience of the Laskas. Certainly, coming from bustling Calcutta, the remote Australian wilderness will have been confronting. I once lived in a suburb on the edges of the urban fringe, the bush at our doors and no nearby village or commercial infrastructure. The local school hosted exchanges with an Indian school and there was a rather difficult incident once when an accompanying teacher was completely freaked out by the loneliness and lack of people about her, having come from a crowded urban environment. She just found the lack of people and the sounds of nature instead extremely anxiety-inducing. Anyway, if they were not to let their stranded companions down, they would simply have to continue northwards and do their best, discomfort or not. McKenna records that they next encountered a new group of Aboriginal people around the Eden area, which he identifies as Thawa people, also known as Dawa. The Australian Institute of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander Studies, the ATSIS map of Indigenous Australia, identifies the country just south of Eden as Yuan Juin, which encompasses Tawa, or the country of the Yuan Monaro Nation, according to the information posted by the Bega Valley Shire Council, and I'll provide a link to that advice in the reference list. Being definitive about the naming of Aboriginal groups, particularly in relation to the early encounters, can be tricky. There may well be an overarching language group name for an area, as described in Gippsland with the Gunai Kurnai, but there can be numerous clans under that umbrella with specific clan names. There can be other sometimes confusing identifications in highly populated or contested areas. But for this retelling, I will identify this group around Eden and northwards as various Yuan clans. And not having heard these names spoken, I'm afraid I'm simply taking my best shot at pronunciation. Obviously, a native speaker would do it much greater justice. Once again, Clark seems to have negotiated friendly relations on his travel through Yuan country. McKenna recounts, quote, Clark and Thompson succeeded in establishing reconciliation with the natives after giving away a few strips of cloth. In a gift-giving culture, Clark's group were well served by offering something in return for passing through their country. And such was the warmth of their welcome that for the first time they allowed the women and children to visit and see the strangers, quite the vote of confidence. Once again the Yuan people followed or met them along the next stretches of their walk and helped them cross rivers and supplemented their food. Clark recording in his journal, quote, Three of our native friends, from whom we parted yesterday, rejoined us and assisted us over the river. 
The act was really kind as they knew we had this river to cross and appear to have followed us purposely to lend their assistance, unquote. No doubt the first Australians were already shaking their heads at the unpreparedness and lack of bush skills they had seen in the motley troop. <laughs> Very kind assistance indeed. McKenna implies that, as they were clearly passing through rather than attempting to occupy their country, the various clans were only too pleased to fulfil their neighbourly cultural obligations and help these men on their way. And again, moving further north into the Yuan country of the Daringa clan, they were again, quote, received in a very amicable manner, unquote, getting help with food and water again. But their initial reception with new groups was not always successful. The terrain northwards became much more difficult, and this was beginning to disable some of the walkers. Clark recording, quote, sharp rocks and very thick brushwood bruised and wounded their feet, unquote with some becoming quite lame. He records a few of the party crawling over 10 miles. By April 5th, some in the group were now seriously weakening and faltering. McKenna records that the rice was by then consumed and their usual diet consisted pretty much only of fish they could catch, so they were struggling nutritionally to fuel the travel distances required. Without the occasional help of those, quote, wretched natives, who nonetheless seemed able to extract all the food they needed from the same environment with little trouble, they would surely all be dead already. But as they became more stressed, I guess, disagreements about how they should be interacting with the Aboriginal people they encountered seemed to become more heated. I think this might imply that some in the group, feeling themselves superior to these natives, should be more forcefully demanding food and support, perhaps. But as McKenna noted, unlike the well-armed colonists in Sydney imposing their will on the Eora people there, Clark's group was in no position to command authority, even if they'd wished to, with their poor weapons, their weakened state and their limited numbers. For a little while longer at least, the first Australians here would have the upper hand. South of Bermagui, Clark's group encountered a large group of armed Jaringai men. South of Bermagui, Clark's group encountered a large group of armed Jaringai men, clearly not quite as disposed to the more friendly relations they'd experienced to date. They apparently made some exchanges and gestures that at least averted violence, but they had a similar encounter the following day, this time with more threats, though again some exchanges were made that allowed them to move on unharmed. On the third day, they managed to barter for a large kangaroo tail, so that would have been welcome, but they did not feel secure about the relations with this group and they were glad to move north, leaving this country behind them. Moving into Walbunga country, they found themselves amongst more friendly people who were once again disposed to share food and guide them on their journey. They were even invited to sit with the women and children and to rest at the camp overnight. Though McKenna suggests news of the white man's occupation in the Eora lands would have been known down the southern coast through the grapevine, Clark's men were the first white men that the Walbunga had seen at that time. He wonders if the understanding that they were moving north rather than stopping gave the Walbunga liberty to be so helpful. Helping to move these men on would be in their own interests. <laughs> A party often travelled with them or encouraged the next clan further north to take up the assistance role, helping Clark's group with food gathering and river crossings, and they made good progress over the following five days. McKenna wrote, quote, 
Originally wary of meeting Aboriginal people when they set out, they were now looking for them every step of their journey. We now often stopped some time with the natives when we found them kind to us, unquote. But the journey was still an arduous one, and by April 16th, nine of the Lascars could no longer press on. There was the idea that they might catch them up after some rest, but it seems Clark was aware they were unlikely to ever see them again, and indeed they never did. Quote, At this place we were under the painful necessity of leaving nine of our fellow sufferers behind, they being totally unable to proceed further. But we flattered ourselves they would be able to come with us in a day or two. Unquote. Being in the middle of country belonging to very hospitable people, it might have been possible that they were taken in by the Walbunga. And don't you find that idea fascinating? Lascars, Bengali men from 12,000 kilometres away, adopted into the Walbunga clans on the east coast. By the time the British colonisers were making their way to this country to acquire land, the Bengalis would have been very old men had they survived. It can't have been easy leaving half the group behind, but they were also responsible for the lives of the men on Preservation Island, and they had to push onwards, even in their weakened state. The following day, Thompson fell into the water as they were attempting a river crossing, and not being a swimmer, he struggled substantially. Clark wrote that although the Bengalis were good swimmers, none attempted to help Thompson. In fact, Clark describes them as, quote, unmoved spectators, unquote. Clark himself jumped in and dragged Thompson to shore, probably just in time. McKenna suggests Clark's record of events indicates his anger at the Lascar's refusal to assist, but offered no clue as to why that might have been. McKenna wondered if they had been angered at the decision to leave their countrymen behind in the days before. Thompson's ordeal and recovery slowed their progress again. They continued to get sporadic assistance along the way until they reached the Jarvis Bay area around 200 kilometres south of Sydney on April 26th. Now in the country of the Dawa language groups, they noticed they were being observed from surrounding high points. With gestures, they begged, and food and fish were provided, but soon the Dawal party grew to more than 100 men, and the tone was becoming more aggressive. McKenna suggests that perhaps Clark's men had made some faux pas of etiquette, or misread the signs from the Dawal men, offending their cultural protocol, because before long they were being threatened with spears. There is no doubt, had they wanted to kill the newcomers, the Dawal could easily have done so, but the resulting injuries read more like some kind of punishment, Clark being speared through both hands and Thompson also being injured, before the 100 or so Dawal men just turned and walked away. Clearly, their point had been made, and the shaken men were left to walk on alone. In the evening, they again encountered the Dawal, and were then led to a campsite, as any visitors passing through the country might be, and they slept there unmolested and were escorted along their way for a time the following morning. It does seem then that the injuries were some sort of punishment for an unrecognised crime, but of course the injuries only served to slow their travel out of Dawal country further, risking further offence. From calculating each day's travel in his journal, Clark knew that they were getting pretty close to the Port Jackson area, but their condition was deteriorating daily, particularly the injured Thompson. They had some help in crossing the rivers and were given some limited supplies, but the carpenter in the party was becoming incensed that the Aboriginal group was not supplying them with more food, and the tensions continued to arise. 
Clark's hand injuries limited his journal writing from then on, but they spent a further two weeks walking nervously on through Darwell country, and by then the approaching cold of autumn was beginning to give them additional grief. By the time they were only a hundred kilometres or so away from Port Jackson settlement, they were covering less than ten kilometres each day, and they were becoming ever more exhausted and desperate. At one point, the frustrated carpenter simply took fish from his hosts without offering something in exchange, and his attitude offended them greatly, possibly putting them all at risk of another attack. So Clark was aware of him being a liability. But within days, Thompson was unable to continue. The carpenter offered to stay with him. Clark thought it best to leave him in the care of the less-than-ideal carpenter so that he could make a final three- or four-day dash to the settlement before they all expired. Clark wrote, It was wrenching to leave the amiable man he was so fond of and that he did not entirely trust the carpenter, but he preferred not to leave him there alone and must push on with the fittest men. And so, though unhappy about the arrangement, Clark and co. made for Port Jackson with all the speed they could muster. Covering 60 kilometres successfully, they found themselves by then reduced to crawling in the sand to progress further. In the Mawson series, we talked about the exhaustion the explorers suffered after long periods with insufficient nutrition. And while Clark was not suffering the extreme cold of Antarctica, he was certainly experiencing some of the extreme fatigue. Fortunately, at the time of their reckoning so close to their goal, they noticed a small boat not far offshore. With every last ounce of energy, they yelled and waved and tried to get the attention of the boat crew. At first it looked as if they might be invisible, but finally one of the crew saw something and he brought the boat in to investigate. They were astonished to find the three dishevelled men there and carried them back to Port Jackson. It was May 17th, almost 80 days since they'd launched their longboat from Preservation Island, and it was six months since they had set out from Calcutta. Clark was desperate to ensure that they could get help to any survivors back on the island at the earliest opportunity. All this time, Hamilton and his men had hunkered down into survival mode, hoping that salvation would come to them. In the early days, the grog that was salvaged proved to be an attractive temptation for the sailors, so Hamilton, still hopeful of getting it to Sydney to make some money from this miserable attempt, had the supplies removed to a nearby island, now known as Rum Island for some almost inexplicable reason. (laughs) Even before they were wrecked on the coast, some of the crew were beginning to exhibit symptoms of scurvy. Within a few weeks, they'd lost three Lascars and one European passenger. With only limited provisions rescued from the Sydney Cove wreck, they would need to improve their nutrition to survive too. Cold and exposure were proving to be a major problem, especially for the crew who are more used to the tropics. And the makeshift tents of salvaged canvas sails didn't hold up against the constant gales thrown at them. Doesn't Tassie sound like a wonderful place to holiday, eh? (laughs) Hamilton had to gather flotsam, jetsam and other materials to build, quote, a single house large enough to contain all hands in bad weather, He had a signal cairn built on the island's high point facing out to sea, and he posted men on the lookout there when they were well enough to do so. Once recovered somewhat, they found they could hunt an array of animals, such as wallaby, wombat, fish, snakes, frogs, Cape Baron geese, quail, ducks, and to make use of some plants such as the saltbush, lichen and assorted succulents on preservation and nearby islands. 
This probably helped allow the further development of scurvy and assisted the remaining men to recuperate. They began hunting the short-tailed shearwater, otherwise known as mutton birds, that nested on the island until the end of April. Hamilton must have been familiar with migrating bird habits from the shearwaters in Scotland, and he knew they should gather the birds and preserve them by smoking to store them for long-term supply of protein before the migration began and the resources left them. They had one surviving cow and a horse to help them through, so they were in relatively good shape after several weeks, despite the appalling weather. But the psychological impact each passing day, knowing their chances of Clark affecting a rescue were optimistic, must have been wearing. Hamilton admitted later he had many days where he, quote, held no hope of being rescued, unquote. When the weather allowed, Hamilton used a small jolly boat to explore his surrounds and he made some sea lane and tide charts of the area. McKenna suggested Hamilton was the first person to record his suspicions that, quote, there is a strait through this part of the coast and that Van Diemen's Land is an island, unquote. Flinders and Bass would prove him right only a few years later. When Clark and the other two were ferried back to Sydney on May 17, 1797, they were delivered straight to Governor Hunter at Government House, such as it was then, just near the harbour, close to the corner of Bridge and Phillip Streets today. The story of their trek filtered through the colony as they recovered. The 700-kilometre walk through the wilderness was sensational in itself, but many were particularly keen on hearing about what lay beyond the known colony boundaries. On the land to the south of Sydney, Clark had described the country as he travelled as, quote, totally different to this, very rich and fertile, abounding in pines and firs, of which there is not one here. In all the intercourse of whites with the uncorrupted natives of this country, they have found them the most kind, humane and generous. No civilised Europeans could exceed them in kindness. They supplied them in abundance and successive parties of fresh natives equally kind, showed them the way, unquote. Clark here at least acknowledged the debt he owed the Indigenous peoples he encountered along the way, almost all friendly and supportive, but later his journal notes were massaged into a more sensational and confrontational interpretation that would better match contact with uncivilised barbarians, the prevailing view that the Westerners preferred, and sadly it was this embellished version that went to print. As McKenna put it, quote, quote, very quickly the survivor story became an allegory for the colonists' hopes and anxieties regarding the expansion of the settlement. The telling of Clark's ordeal could be used to both confirm the benign intentions of the natives and to establish their barbarity, unquote. Governor Hunter interpreted the story to indicate that the travellers were, quote, much annoyed and wounded by the Aboriginal people, unquote despite the majority of the interaction actually being friendly, supportive and helpful. So the evidence gathered and the intelligence gained by Clark was really completely wasted on those who already had opinions formed about the Indigenous peoples, which was a real loss. If they could build on the understandings begun about the rules and etiquette, about entering the country on different clans, the ceremony and the protocols required for successful communication and negotiation, much pain may have been avoided in the coming years. On the other hand, there are fundamental and probably irreconcilable differences in the way each culture treats land and considers ownership, so perhaps no accommodation could have been made by the British in reality. 
The day following Clark's arrival in Sydney, Hunter sent the rescue fishing boat back south to see if he could find Thompson and the carpenter, who had been left behind. But nothing substantial could be discovered, except a few trinkets they attributed to the men, one covered in blood, thus encouraging the search team to assume that they must have been violently killed by the natives. Actually, Clark felt that this may indeed have been their fate, as he'd been concerned that the carpenter's, quote, morose, unfeeling disposition, an attitude that insisted because the Aborigines were blackfellows, it was right to take their food by force, unquote, would create a confrontation. Actually, there might be plenty of white men who would respond violently to the carpenter had he treated them like that, so Clark's suspicion may well have been correct. Clark had also noted in his journal that they had come across coal in an area where they left the two men, and months later, Hunter sent Bass and Flinders to investigate if the mentioned coal might be a viable resource to exploit. A Darwell man they met there led them to two skeletons in the bush, one with a fractured skull, and he claimed that they were white men. Bass and Flinders assumed this was proof of the fate of Thompson and the unnamed carpenter. No search party was ever sent for the Lascars who were left much further south, and nothing further was ever discovered about their fate. I am so curious about their destiny. It seemed like they might have had a good chance to survive and live on with the Walwanga people there. But did they? Hunter did immediately ready two rescue ships and prepared to sail to Preservation Island to recover the people and goods there, and Bennett, by then feeling well enough to travel again, volunteered to join them, while Clark continued his recovery. Of the manservant's condition, we know nothing. So on May 30th, the two rescue vessels departed. On June 8th, Hamilton at Preservation Islands sighted a longboat in the west, and though he launched his little boat to try and intercept, his heart sank when he failed to get their attention, and the longboat sailed away. He returned to the island and lit the massive bonfire at the signal can. Two nervous days later, Captain Armstrong's longboat finally approached the island, to the delight of all. Captain Armstrong let Hamilton know all about Clark's ordeal, and the two ships nearby readied to effect their rescue of the survivors and recover the salvaged goods as soon as the weather and tides allowed. Not all of it could be carried back on the Francis and the Eliza, so they had sent a few convicts to stay behind on Preservation Island and guard the cargo until they could return and collect the last of it. Those in charge of the cargo didn't feel all that comfortable with that arrangement. Something about fox guarding a hen house or something. <laughs> so the ever loyal company man Bennett offered to stay behind instead, along with a few volunteers amongst the men who had already spent half a year on the island. After loading a good percentage of the salvaged cargo onto the boats, Hamilton and some of his men boarded the Francis, and the others boarded the Eliza, departing for Sydney on June 23rd. And in predictable form, storms began rolling in for their voyage north. It seems someone in that party had really crapped off Poseidon. Some very bad weather mojo was following them still. Once again, these poor folks were at the mercy of the ocean in an Australian winter, and soon the ships had become separated in a violent storm. The Francis, with Hamilton aboard, made landfall in Sydney on July 3rd, 
where he then had his cargo deposited in His Majesty's store. Mindful of his obligations, he then made his way to the office of the judge advocate to lodge a legal protest which would record and explain the loss of the Sydney Cove. A ship's protest is still a legal instrument used today, and taking a quick look on a solicitor's website, I see that they explain it this way. Quote, During every ship captain's career comes a time when there is a requirement for a ship's protest to be noted. A ship's protest is a statement or protest written by the captain that outlines an incident or misadventure that caused damage or loss to the vessel or its cargo while at sea. This includes accidents, bad weather damage, engine breakdowns, collisions with other vessels, wharves or sea animals, strandings and beaching. A ship's protest is usually filed as a security measure. Its objective is to help the captain and officers and crew substantiate that they had not been negligent when aboard the ship and their conduct had not contributed to the incident reported in the protest. Unquote. So, Hamilton was keen to record that he was in no way negligent and that he did his utmost to safeguard the men and the cargo he had taken responsibility for. And I think we can say that this was indeed a genuine reflection of the situation. But everyone was beginning to learn how difficult the conditions could be sailing around the Australian coast and they would have further proof when it became clear that the second rescue ship must have foundered in the recent storms. The Eliza never made it back to Sydney and no wreckage or other sign of its fate was ever found. The poor Sydney Cove passengers and crew who had already suffered so much trauma were lost at sea again, this time with no hope of rescue. Very sad. Nash calculated the casualty rate for the 56 original Sydney Cove crew and passengers was around 60%. On his recovery, Clark made plans to return to Calcutta and report on what had happened, while Hamilton continued fulfilling his obligations by arranging for another ship to retrieve the remaining men and cargo from Preservation Island. Clark first accompanied George Bass back down the coast to the beach where he'd found the coal, bringing a load back for assessment of suitability to bolster the resources of the colony. Then, soon afterwards, he sailed away from Sydney on the Britannia, in the company of his manservant and a number of the remaining Lascars, arriving back in Calcutta via China towards the end of the year. His story had been of such interest that his journals were used, with the writing assistance of a British journalist, as a basis for a wide publication of, quote, White Man Against the Elements and the Savages, unquote, account of the adventure, published first in two parts in December 1797 and January 1798, in Calcutta's Asiatic Mirror. It was then immediately syndicated to other newspapers around the world. A version of this is available at the Historical Records of New South Wales, and I've provided a link to that in the reference list. McKenna suggests the original journals, which may be a more reliable source for his actual experiences and encounters, have not been located and may not have been preserved. Because of the shortage of available vessels in Port Jackson at that time, Hamilton was unable to depart for Preservation Island until December. While Governor Hunter was not keen on having more alcohol in the country, seeing it as a corrupting influence for the convicts and militia alike, as McKenna put it, quote, he had little choice but to purchase the alcohol in order to control its sale and distribution, unquote. 
because word had already got around about the wreck of the Sydney Cove and the store of rum awaiting rescue on Preservation Island, and the usual kooky plans that desperate people make had already begun. <laughs> Quote, In September, Hunter had the spur he required to purchase the spirits, when rum fever led 14 convicts to hatch a harebrained scheme to escape, sail to the wreck of the Sydney Cove, and attempt to claim the rum for themselves. After thieving a boat on Parramatta River, they sailed down the coast with the intention of floating the ship, or at least raiding it of all its cargo and selling the proceeds overseas. Miraculously, this ill-prepared band of Irish marauders <laughs> managed to reach as far south as Wilson's Promontory. That's the very southern point of the mainland, sticking out into Bass Strait above Tassie. There, on a small offshore island, seven of the convicts stole out to sea one evening while their fellow escapees were asleep, effectively leaving the others for dead, unquote. So much for honour amongst thieves, eh? It seems it may have been a traumatic journey. They had given up on the plan and simply wished to return to the relative civilisation and safety of the colonial settlement, perhaps. Quote, the betrayers reached the Hawkesbury before eventually turning themselves in. Two were later put to death for escaping from Sydney. For the seven convicts who woke to find themselves stranded, they remained weeks on the island before George Bass happened past and spotted them while exploring the coast in early January 1798, unquote. I always find it astounding that anyone on shore in these times might be seen from a ship, and that given how few ships were even in the area at the time, these blokes were supremely lucky. Though Bass could not rescue them at the time, he instead left supplies and would collect them on the way back in February. But even then he could fit only two on board, so he ferried the other five across to the mainland, gave them a compass, a musket and ammunition, some fishing gear and clothing, and told them to start their walk back to Sydney. <laughs> Predictably, they were never heard of again. McKenna pondered if they might have made it far enough to meet up with the stranded Lascars from Clark's journey but I think the Help Clark's group elicited from the local Indigenous people on their trek was largely down to the care he took in approaching them and in trying to understand the gestures and protocols being hinted at. The convict group that thought it was a good idea to pinch a small boat and steal rum stored 500 nautical miles away do not sound like the smartest tax in a box. Their ability to negotiate and understand the nuance required seems improbable. I would hazard they were unlikely to make it that far north at all. Hamilton, Bennett and the remaining Lascars arrived back in Sydney with the last of the rescued supplies from Preservation Island in February of 1798, and they reported that remnants of the Sydney Cove were by then entirely washed away. Matthew Flinders had accompanied Hamilton in this later salvage voyage and he took the opportunity to further chart the area and with the superior weapons he had at his disposal shoot a number of animal specimens there. He also shot a good number of seals whose pelts were a very attractive trade item. A sealer's outpost was later set up on nearby Cape Barren Island to exploit the seals in the area supplying more than 9,000 pelts to the Canton market alone, according to McKenna. Hamilton, having already negotiated the sale of the grog, then arranged for the other goods to be offered at market, and he found they were still in very high demand. A solitary mare had made it back to Sydney after its year-long ordeal. The poor cow mentioned earlier had perished on the island. And he also had an organ and a buggy to sell, so the auction would have been lively. 
Campbell and Clark, despite the drama of their first attempt, knew that great financial gain was still to be made trading into Sydney, and they continued to stock and send shiploads of goods to the young colony. In fact, Linda Clark wrote in the Launceston Historical Society Papers and Proceedings that in the following 30 years, one-third of all ships arriving in New South Wales were coming from the thriving trading ports of Bombay, Madras and Calcutta, being both closer to Australia and, at that time, at the centre of global trade anyway. So Campbell and Clark, one of the smaller agencies operating out of Calcutta, would have been only one of many merchants making their fortune from supplying the needs of the growing colony. Linda also noted that it was a perilous business though, with 10% of the ships foundering on the outward or return journey. Poor old Hamilton though didn't manage to realise his share of his fortune, as he died very soon after returning to Calcutta, only 38 years old. Clark died in 1800 from one of the tropical diseases that seemed to take out a good percentage of the Europeans in those days, so he also had very little time to gain from the gambles they had made. One of the partners in the Calcutta business, Robert Campbell, sold his shares and sailed for a new life in the Australian colony. And McKenna describes him becoming one of the colony's most successful merchants and squatters, settling on land granted to him in Queenbeyan, which he named Duntroon. The Australian government later rented Duntroon from the Campbell family and in 1912 purchased it, now Duntroon, the Royal Military College in Canberra. I loved hearing about this story and I think it's quite surprising that the first non-Indigenous people who made a long-distance trek through the southern Australian mainland turned out to be a mix of Lascars and Scots. <laughs> I'm fascinated by the prospect of the Bengali Lascars potentially being absorbed into the clans around Moyora River. Hamilton's observations and charts, where he pondered the possibility of a strait between the mainland Australia and Tasmania, were very soon afterwards confirmed by the explorations undertaken by Bass and Flinders, leading to a virtual shortcut in the sailing route to Sydney. Though, as hinted at earlier, it proved to be a treacherous and difficult stretch of water to sail well, as the slew of later shipwrecks along Victoria's western coast and Tasmania's north demonstrate. In 2005, Nash published a paper on the archaeological investigations related to the Sydney Cove. He noted that the National Historic Shipwreck Database lists over 7,400 wrecks in Australian waters, 1,100 of which are around the Tasmanian coast, and that only 15 of those resulted in survivors creating a campsite and staying more than a week. So Preservation Island was a very valuable site from which to gather evidence. The Sydney Cove wreck itself was identified in 1977 in five metres of water and various investigations were undertaken of the wreck and of the island sites over the intervening years. The camp area was surveyed and recorded in 1985, noting the remnants of the stone base of the original signal can, stone walls and numerous artefacts from the house built to shelter them, along with various other artefacts associated with their occupation. The finds matched the maps made by Flinders on the final visit to the Selvage the Goods in 1798. Artifacts recovered form a permanent exhibition in Launceston's Queen Victoria Museum, and I have that on my list to follow up and visit in the future. Interestingly, no evidence was found on Preservation Island of any Aboriginal shell middens, so it seems to suggest that this was never a place with abundant and easily gathered shellfish. 
they concluded from investigations of remnants on the ship that the crew and passengers may have been able to recover their personal possessions and useful tools before the ship submerged completely, and this would have helped them survive the ordeal on Preservation Island. So, I thought this a very interesting story. A sad one for the high loss of life, but also an illustrative one in the potential that was present for Indigenous European relations. This group experienced the most extensive and sustained contact with Aboriginals from at least eight different language groups along the south coast of Sydney in their 700km trek. Such conditions were unlikely to be matched for decades, if indeed ever. McKenna reminds us Clark had met these Aboriginal people as few others had encountered them, that is, as temporary visitors to their country, and I would add weak and in great need of assistance to survive and Clark experienced their great skill and cultural knowledge accumulated over millennia before their contact with Europeans had resulted in a rapid decline and sometimes loss of these attributes. Clark's journal might have been very instructive if the newcomers were interested in mutual respectful negotiations, and the government might have learnt a lot about the attitude of the Indigenous to their country if they had not dismissed the information they were offered, as Hunter did, perhaps saving some grief in the clash of cultures. I thought McKenna's work was wonderful and I look forward, when time permits, to reading the other three stories he resurrects in the book, one of which is also on my list of topics to cover. Oh, that list, that list, ever growing as time compresses. (laughs) Anyway, it was a fantastic story. I hope you enjoyed it too. Wow, I was really pressed for time this month, so I'm just going to recommend a new podcast I found recently, even though there are only a few episodes to date. They are, however, great quality and very interesting. It's called the Sick to Death podcast. On a medical theme and supported by the Wellcome Trust, the team explores the history of medicine during the prehistoric and ancient world. As always, I'll put a link to this recommended podcast on my webpage. Remember to head to the website at australianhistoriespodcast.com.au and see the reference list for this episode and a few interesting images. Finally, I want to thank the Little Buffalo Marketing Agency again for the support that they provide me. As a specialist communications business, they have the skills to design and implement a marketing strategy that's completely appropriate and tailored at very reasonable prices. You can find a sample of the work they've done for a range of customers at www.thelittlebuffalo.com.au. Lee and the team are wonderful, hands-on and always happy to chat about any project or idea you have. Contact them via their website at thelittlebuffalo.com.au I'm hoping for another single episode topic next time, so thanks for listening. Have a safe and happy few weeks and I'll talk to you next month. Cheers. Cheers.